I'm Priscilla McKinney, host of Ponderings from the Perch, the Little Bird Marketing Company podcast. So with me today is a super fun guest, and of course, you're going to love his accent. You know how it's just easy to get on my podcast if you have a fantastic accent. But this is Andrew Kuehler today. He's the founder and CEO of the Silk Initiative, and we met in Bangkok and just hit it off, had a great lunch. I can't wait to tell you all about him, but Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Priscilla, for having me. Well, you know what? We're going to start all calm, but the truth of the matter is is that um, you and I could talk forever. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I think our love of entrepreneurship and just um, interesting oddities about about human behavior and about how that translates across culture, I, I seriously, like there's not a lunch or a dinner that is long enough, which... In China, they do have epic lunches and dinners, right? <laughs> Pretty long, yeah. <laughs> and my waistline shows for it. <laughs> well, and you've been there in China long enough, so I'm going to let you tell everybody about that. But just really quick, Andrew is the founder. He's the CEO of the Silk Initiative, and it is China's only specialized food and Bev insights-driven brand consultancy. And that's a mouthful, but let me tell you, this guy knows what transcends culture, what, how, where to look to understand what's trending. But he's a native Australian, and like I said, you'll love the accent, but he has managed his global career. I know that you were in New York for a while, Andrew. You've um, been in Shanghai and uh, fluent in Mandarin. And uh, so tell us a little bit about what was the journey? How did you get from, from Australia and carving out your whole path right into the Silk Initiative and why you started that for yourself? Sure, absolutely. Well, it's, um, it, is, it is certainly a journey. I mean, it goes all the way back to, to my childhood, some, some pretty early um, influences there from my godparents who were from Hong Kong. And sort of growing up in Cantonese kitchens and, and restaurants they had, and then I went on to study Mandarin and marketing at university, did a double degree in that. Came back here then uh, in in '96 as part of my degree, and thought I want to work in this market. And so I came out of industry and marketing in Australia uh, up here in 2000, actually starting my insights career. Literally no contract signed, joined an in, in insights agency, and then it's just been this journey for the last what, 19, 19 years. And, uh, yeah, so I sort of spent a first, the first few years of uh, the 2000s working here and then went back to Australia and then across to New York for five years and, and back here in 2010. Well, so New York and then Sydney um, and also Melbourne and, and Shanghai. So, okay, when you're in Shanghai, what's the thing you're missing the most about uh, Australia? The most about Australia? Well, I, I think just the, you know, the ability to, uh, kind of know what you're getting at any one time, and I think just the the ease of life, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty predictable. I think you know the same in the states where you can walk into a Whole Foods market and sort of plan out your weekly grocery shop. <laughs> That's not as easy to do in Shanghai. Um, but I think for me, just the things that I grew up with my childhood, you know, throwing the dog in the back of the car and going to the beach and going for beautiful drives and visiting people's nice houses and things like that. You know, the lifestyle is just so different here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm lucky enough, though, I get to travel back to Australia a lot for work, so I can tap into that, which is quite nice, um, and fill the suitcase full of all those goodies. Right, right. <laughs> but for you, those goodies, those are all work-related uh, expenses, correct? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's so ideal working in food and Bev cross culturally, (laughs) you know, I I joked around with you about, you know, when I'm traveling, instead of bringing, you know, souvenirs that are, you know, pretty typical for my kids, um, I always bring back snacks. 
That's to me, mm-hmm. it's just like, first of all, my kids don't need anything else and I don't want f- things filling up my house. And snacks are just one of those great things where you can show your kids the culture and, yeah. you know, they, you know, they get experience something, but then I don't have stuff that's in my house and cluttering things up. So it's a super fun thing for me. Exactly. So what's your favorite snack? What's, you know, you're, you're in the industry, you're, you know, you're constantly seeing what's trending, what's new, what's, what's kind of your go-to? Um, well, kind of anything in the health and wellness space, because I think that is just the hardest to get in China. Um, you pay a real premium and there's just not that much. I just got back from Los Angeles, actually, from Expo West, and I came back with these huge bags of all the latest health and wellness snacks from the U.S., you know, plant-based proteins and MCT oils and all that sort of stuff. Like anything kind of in that space, I, I love I love a good meal, but I also love a, a pretty good, robust, healthy snack. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, uh, you know, any of that stuff that's out there, to be honest, that um, we get in the West. I mean, that's a big gap in the China market right now. So it's when I'm traveling, those are the things I tend to lean for uh, that tend to make it into the suitcase. You know, you're in Shanghai most of the year. So when you're leaving Shanghai and say you're going to be in New York for quite a while, are, is there something yeah. you absolutely don't, you know, leave Shanghai without? You're like, this is my, this is my snack. This is what I, what I crave. Uh, not really. <laughs> it's like great, <laughs> great Chinese snacks. I, I fill my suitcase with it. Tends to be the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I might have my craving for good Chinese food when I'm abroad. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Spicy Chinese food. Mm-hmm. If I'm traveling, like I was just in Toronto, I was like, I just had a hankering for spicy Chinese food. So I had to go to Chinatown and have that. Uh, so I'll tend, to, I'll tend to be on the lookout for good local Chinese cuisine when I'm traveling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, next time we're together, can you please pick the spot? Because yeah. <laughs> although when we were in Bangkok, I got to say, I mean, come on, we could not get a bad meal. No, I know that place is wicked, isn't it? It's all all good there. So awesome. So awesome. So let's talk a little bit about your journey in this industry. You've been in the industry for a long time. You've worked your way up. What do you think has been that the key to your success? Why is it that you see the Chinese market in an interesting and a nuanced way? How is it that you've been able to help people find the way that their brand can get into the incredibly huge Chinese market? So what's worked for me, I guess, um, well, I remember when I started out, I mean, I, I met this fellow from the Australian New Zealand Bank and he was saying, you know, you've got, you've got to tap the conversation streams. There's so much going on when it comes to China, various countries, various industries. So just networking like a madman, I think that was one of the biggest things that helped me. And so just surrounding myself by, you know, uh, very capable people. Um, chambers of commerce from the US, from Australia, from Britain, getting on the speaking circuit has been hugely valuable for me. So I, th- I think for the first couple of years, um, I was everywhere that could be seen when it came to sort of the speaking circuit, mm-hmm. meeting all the folks that are coming into China, trading in the food and beverage space. So that kind of fact gathering was really helpful for me. And that's knowledge, right? When you start hearing the conversations of what keeps folks up at night, then you start to think about, okay, what can I offer from a brand consulting perspective? I mean, I had all the, the, I'd say the quintessential knowledge early in my career from marketing and insights, Um, but how to wrap that up for inbound brands was quite new to me, to be honest. Um, So that was, I think, a big part of our success is just surrounding ourselves with folks who had similar problems and then working out bit by bit how to solve those problems. And those then became solutions for TSI. 
Well, it is a really huge market. In fact, it's incredibly daunting. Do you want to throw a few figures at me, a few stats that kind of overwhelm people a little bit about the the Chinese market? I'm sure yeah. you, you know them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something like more than 100 cities the size of Melbourne, which is where I'm oh. from. Um, you know, there's, there's more food delivery um, uh, folks buzzing around on motorbikes than the whole population of New Zealand. You know, just <laughs> delivering meals around China at any one moment. Um, you know, there's 10, 10 million commuters a day on the Shanghai subway. So I think wow. we just... Yeah, so just massive. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's the numbers, and it, and it is daunting. You know, like I got off the, the plane from the US last week and just walking to Shanghai Airport and just seeing all the signs about digital and big data and just the magnitude of China. It can be quite overwhelming when you step off a plane well, and come back into China. And what's overwhelming right now in terms of the stats about the, you know, the, the emerging middle class in China? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, massive. I mean, we're talking by 2023, I think, bigger than the whole, the entire U.S. population, over 300 million people. So, um, and I think we're already seeing that, to be honest. I think that's already here. Yeah. <laughs> I think some of the stats that you see officially released are not particularly accurate. And I think we're, we're probably already beyond that number. I think China's probably already beyond 1.5 billion people. Probably a lot of folks that don't even get reported. Right. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I looked at that number, 1.5 billion. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, certainly I read that wrong. But, it, you know, it, it is just so massive. So you, you talked about how you have carved out a, you know, a, an amazing niche um, in the insights industry so that brands look to you guys and, you know, to your team to help them find their place in the Chinese market. But so from that perspective, what is keeping them up at night? What are some of the things that they come to you and say? What are they, where are they stuck? Um, classic examples is, uh, you know, would be the retail channel. Uh, it's very complex now. So there's a, it's something like 30 to 40% of new brands are launched on e-commerce in China. It's really significant. They have big, you know, significant players here like the Amazons that you would have in the States um, so just working out the buyer behavior in that particular channel is very complex. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Then they've got their offline channels, so your traditional brick-and-mortar supermarkets, convenience stores, hypermarkets. Um, that's where most of the volume is driven. Um, but when brands have big portfolios, it tends to be as, base, as basic as like what brand belongs where and with what consumer buyer type and who's the target profile. And what is a consumption occasion? And then they start getting into product innovation. Do I have the right products? Is my pack showing up in the way that I want it to? Is my brand messaging, you know, on on cue? So all of those, you know, fundamentals are the things that we tend to answer for clients on any given day uh, from any industry, whether it's a lobster trader through to someone making chocolate. um, They tend to be the same issues uh, around the marketing mix. What is the right marketing mix for China? And just working that out because it's so fragmented. Um, it's not an established retail um, industry like, say, in the States or Australia. Right. And and it's not as cohesive. And what I mean by that is there are more um, um, there are more differentiations between the people groups in China in terms of the, the actual uh, regions. And yeah. so it's not this homogenous, 
you know, Chinese market. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to repeat a little bit what you heard there. And, I, you know, the the, how confusing it can be for people who want to put their market, their 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 product in the market. There's branding issues that have to transfer uh, culturally. The messaging, the marketing message has to get there. You have to get on the right shelf space. You have to be at the right store on the right shelf at the right Mm -hmm. time for the right person, you know, with the right kind of frequency. So it is super overwhelming. What advice would you give now with all of your years of experience bringing people and, and, and not necessarily bringing them in, but giving them the data that they need to help form their brand or ideate or, you know, product um, innovate? What would be your advice for, you know, a brand looking to break into this industry for the first time? That's got to be very different. First time. Um well, I'm a big fan of producing your own data. I think there are too many brands that come in just trying to like, they'll make multiple trips here, they'll buy a few published reports, they'll get a, a couple of freebie white papers from their local bank. Um, there's a lot of that kind of just pulling together bits and bobs and trying to produce a story. I think if you're really serious to go out and produce your own research, real research that gets you front and centre with a consumer, gets you into focus groups, gets you into homes, get you into the retail space, thinking and, and feeling like a consumer um, and asking those kind of questions around brand, you know, what to do with that. Uh, so that is that's a key thing. I think then obviously surrounding yourself sooner rather than later with really capable people and, mm-hmm. and also so that would be, you know, often when brands coming from Australia say get to know uh, the Australian China Business Council, get to know the Australian Chamber of Commerce, these organizations and industry groups have already vetted a lot of networks in the market. Who's capable, who's not capable? Who do they need to be going to for trademarking advice? Who are the best distributors? Who has real success when it comes to building sales and marketing teams in China? Um, One thing I'm particularly impressed about for the Australian community is just how well networked they are with one another. It's obviously a smaller market. But they'll have these industry forum dinners once a quarter. They all get to know each other and just, you know, uh, sharing their stories and their war stories. That what works. So those are sort of some of the fundamentals, I think, that are necessary. It's not just about brand. It's also about networks. It's also about capability to do that as quickly as possible um, and to do it thoroughly, not to take shortcuts. Yeah. So you talk about just absolutely getting your own data. So using a reliable source like this, a reliable um, partner to get their own data. But tell us how, how does the Silka Initiative actually get data for people? What what are some of your methodologies and, you know, what are your, your go-to approaches for testing branding, testing products, you know, hearing, you know, in, in shop alongs? What, 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 what goes on at the Silk Initiative every day? Yeah. Well, I... I as a practitioner, I was, you know, trained on all of these research approaches, custom research approaches, ethnography, um, central location tests, home visits, uh, online panels, focus groups. So we basically apply all of those methodologies depending on what the issue is. Um, we do things like social listening. Uh, we use WeChat forum groups that we create. We'll work with partners to basically create panels for us depending on what the, the need is. Um, anything from four focus groups up to tens of thousands of interviews. Um, We're developing our own IP tool now, which is pretty cool, which will be a monthly tracker of the whole food and beverage market and consumer sentiment. Um, But 
old-fashioned going into people's homes, running focus groups. We produce all of that stuff um, uh, at, the, at the Silk Initiative. And there's three areas that we work across. So we do a ton of discovery work, discovering the, the consumer landscape, the competitive landscape, how brands are showing up. We then have an innovation team, so then we're actually producing new products, packaging, visual assets. And then the final step is what we call scale. So we're testing and validating all of those learnings. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, for a company, a CEO or a board to get behind a China decision, they want to see a number. Mm-hmm. They don't just want to see a few facts or a few learnings. They want to see what is the size of the prize? Will I get 60% of the market? Will I get 80% of the consumer target? Will I be able to knock the competitor off their perch in this particular retailer? What will be the uplift at the shelf if we reorganize a planogram? So they want to see numbers. So that's why over time we've, we've found that we work very nicely across those three areas, discovery, innovation, and scale. Let's take a short break. Whether you're a master of the trade or new to the content marketing game, we've got a giveaway going this month that you need to enter. We're calling it the Ultimate Content Marketing Giveaway. We've partnered with some of our favorite authors, thought leaders, and brands to compile a gift set valued over $250. From helpful resources to unique swag, the Ultimate Content Marketing Giveaway Package has everything you need to take your marketing strategy to the next level. The winner will receive five content marketing books, including Effective Sales Enablement by Pam Didner, Marketing Landmines by Karen Tibbles, Social Selling by Tim Hughes and Matt Reynolds, Brilliant Social Media by Adam Gray, and Content Chemistry by Andy Crestadina. You'll also receive awesome swag from Little Bird Marketing, AYTM, P2 Sample, Dynata, and more. This list just keeps growing, so stay tuned for new additions. Whatever you do, don't miss this giveaway. We hope you'll go to littlebirdmarketing.com slash content marketing giveaway to enter. Best of luck! So do you find that some people, obviously they need these three, but do you find that some people come to you and they just want just the scale? And you're like, no, no, it just yeah. doesn't work that way. <laughs> Is that what's well, going they on? They do, and then it just becomes a discussion about how much they've already invested. They spent two or three years doing that other work. And we sometimes work with their data. Uh, we've had one client who said, I'm not doing any more research. Here's 40 reports. Can you work with that? And it might be a workshop. It might be just, okay, we'll take what we can, and we'll produce a concept and we'll test it. But ultimately, it's like dirty data in, dirty data out. You know, like if we haven't been all over producing the data, it's pretty difficult for us to consult well. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And what you mentioned is that these are huge investments. I mean, they're not going into a small market. (laughs) So to go into a market and try and innovate in, you know, in a in a market that you that these brands. You know, first of all, those brands, a lot of times, I think you would agree, they're already struggling to innovate even within their own market. And they're yeah. looking outside and looking at China and saying, hey, this could be, a, you know, this could be our next ticket. It's obviously got a big enough scale. But, you know, then all the numbers are much bigger, too, because all of the all of the risk, you know, there's a lot of upside, but the downsides, you know, big. So tell us about that, like not necessarily a failure that you've seen out there in the market, but what what's something interesting that most outsiders wouldn't know that is a pitfall of coming into, you know, the Chinese market? And, you know, what's something that is just like, man, if you lived here, you'd know <laughs> type of thing. <coughs> If I think of brand stories, I think it's kind of like um, at, at a certain point, a brand has to make a decision about, you know, adapt and, and culturize or localize or, or sort of stagnate and die. So there are multiple brands that have done that. Uh, I mean, Oreo did that for many years. They were quasi-successful in the market, being the first sort of cookie coming in. 
from from their portfolio in the US. And then uh, and then they sort of flattened and flattened out with their sales, and they started to really localize, and they've taken off. Uh, we work with a big brand, Tim Tams from Australia, that sort of did the same thing. They had a four or five million dollar trading business, <clears throat> and uh, eventually worked out that you know their cookie is way too sweet and way too big and indulgent for the Chinese palate. And either they made some fundamental changes to the product and the brand, or they won't. We're going to kind of make it. Uh, last weekend, I walked down to our corner supermarket and I see a full display of Tim Tams on the shelf, and I was like, "That's a nice moment," you know. Mm. They're now. 2,000 supermarkets, 1,500 convenience stores. They've taken a two-year journey to really um, launch their brand in China properly, um, not completely throwing everything out the window, but at least letting go a little bit. I think there has to be a turning point in an organization where headquarters or the central marketing team is willing to really let go and cultureize the product more and the brand experience more and then we start to see things take off but we're still in the infancy of that to be honest there are not a other than coca-cola or mcdonald's who came in here in the 80s and 90s you know like there's not that many success stories like everyone it's pretty painful for a lot of these brands you know they're they're going through this period now going well we're moving from a trading business now to a more localized business and they're still building out their marketing teams and they're still working out how much innovation they actually want to do. So there's this interesting journey. Um, I think we're kind of now through the worst of that. I think a lot of these global brand teams are going, all right, we need to let go. You know, if we really want to do China properly, we can't treat it as US. Mm-hmm. Now, they already have 300 million you know, middle-class folks there. <laughs> like, if it's taken us 30 or 40 years to, to achieve this with our brand in the States, it's going to take a while to do it in China. We now better invest properly behind that. Right, where so, there's, what, emerging almost three times the amount yeah. of middle class <laughs> as in the U.S. Yeah, so I, I think we're kind of just on the verge of a good shakeout, a good mm-hmm. shakeout of brands who are taking it seriously and those who aren't, and, and the ones who will survive who are, the ones are going to be the ones who adapt. Okay, well, I don't want to give away anything, but you have, like, the best quiz that's out there about, you know, are, you know, how, basically along the lines of, you know, how much do you know about the Chinese market? And I got to tell you, it was just, a, it was so horrible in some ways for me to take it because it's amazing. <laughs> you don't know what you don't know. And it really sheds light on it. But I got to, I got I to gotta, uh, ask you about one of the questions on there. I need to know what the answer was. Okay. Okay. So there was one question about what is a flavor that absolutely does not translate well on the Chinese palate? What was the right answer? You can work it out. What did you think it was going to be? You know, I I guessed I, I guess there was one that was like an herb. Um, let's see here. Different spice. No, it wasn't spice. It was a. Uh, it was rosemary, is what I guessed. Yeah. Well, there's two. There's blue cheese. Oh, blue cheese. A lot of Chinese people freak out about blue cheese, but yeah, it is rosemary. Isn't that amazing? Like we've tested a lot of concepts that have rosemary in them uh, from overseas. Like they could be chips, crisps, they could be um, crackers, and they're just like just kind of rejected. I don't know why. It's one of those flavors. Yeah. Rosemary, yeah. blue cheese. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple like that that are a bit too weird. Well, that was um, a super fun quiz to kind of like, like I said, just decide, you know, yeah. for it's just to be in your face like you don't know what you don't know. And it's not because, you know, it's not because I'm stupid. It's because there this market is complex. You, you, this is not simple. 
This is not, you know, it's not as straightforward as you think. And getting really great guidance about how even to go about, you know, innovating in a product, in a culture that, you know, you're not familiar with. So it is interesting to really understand that there are still some companies trying to break into China and actually still trying to do it through their own internal um, insights departments that have all kinds of assumptions. Lots of assumptions. And, and you know, sadly, sometimes throwing great concepts out that we've found have worked in China, mm. um, only because some maybe some egos uh, were offended back at headquarters or they didn't get it or they shut it down because they said the factory can't produce it. Uh, and then, lo and behold, six months, a year later, we see another competitor producing that and doing really well with it. <laughs> I've been through that. I'm like, please, just launch this. Your R&D team can make this work. No, they can't. It just doesn't fit with their brand. Right. Right. Uh, and then later, we see it. So... <laughs> well, you have a unique perspective because you're dealing with branding people, you're dealing with insights people, you're dealing with even, you know, people that are doing just crunching the data, you know, looking at the numbers of the uh, yeah. of the data. And then all you, you talk even with the people in R&D and how can yep. we innovate this and how could this go forward? So I, I do know you, you know, Andrew, through, through other people to be a pretty big truth teller. So let's kind of end on a little bit more of a your story type of thing. What's some of the best uh, advice you've received? received in your career some of the worst advice it could have to do with the Chinese market of food and bev or you know snacks uh, or anything or just even just the career in general let's start with the worst advice to be honest I, I think I've always been pretty good at surrounding myself with competent people so to be honest like I have I feel like I've received awful advice that I've taken over the years um, I think in just growing a company some of it would be around um you know, scaling too fast, um, you know, advice about taking on people, senior people who, who sound competent in one region or something like that, but they don't sort of translate well into this market. That's, there've been some hiccups there, you know, where I've uh, taken trusted, what I thought was trusted advice around people. And I think just because of where we are and what we do, it's just so complex here and it just requires a pretty special dot connector and commercially minded person. So that's probably been the biggest one. Um, the best advice is my father. You know, like when I started this business, um, my parents just retired. They're 77. It's an incredible story of just dedication and um, what it takes. And and um, they have been my sort of constant go-to. And we always go back to this point about elation and deflation. And, and my, my dad would say, you know, like many of the entrepreneurs he saw in his his time um, could only ride the waves when they were really high, not when they were low. Uh, they can only sort of ride the tops, not the bottom. So it's like, you know, how do you kind of like um, stay focused on the goal and kind of ride through that middle middle part and sort of ignore the high ups and the high downs um, and stay motivated? I think that is a big deal for me. And that makes a lot of sense because what you're trying to do is come alongside brands and help them make a long play. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think we do need to work across so many stakeholders, from marketing to R&D to CEOs to production people. We're kind of, you know, it's like spinning plates, you know, trying to keep them all in the air at any one time and keep folks motivated and focused um, and all sort of working toward the greater good. Um, it's exciting, but I think it does require a special skill in this market because there can be so many daily distractions and disappointments because of the magnitude and the size of China hmm. that get in the way of brand owners where they can feel burned pretty quickly. 
Um, so yeah, keeping your eye on the sort of eye on the longer target is key in this yeah. particular. Yeah, yeah, that's that's I, that's that's really great. Okay, so we're going to end with a little bit of a quick, uh, uh, like a rapid fire kind of session. I don't, you know, we've talked a lot, but I don't think we've talked a lot about like what we're reading right now in books. Are you more of a podcast person or a book person? I, I, I don't I don't think you read as much. I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're more of a podcast guy. Yeah, podcasts, blogs, apps. Um, I mean, the pod, it all has to do with work. To be honest, like in those moments where I can actually load, <laughs> tend to be about you know, um, you know, you feel pretty isolated over here as a foreign entrepreneur in China. So it's like, how do I, where do I reach to for for advice? So favorite podcast would probably be Masters of Scale. Uh, by Reid Hoffman right now, so I'm sort of dipping in and out of that. Um, and then also, you know, um, uh, favorite book uh, would be an ebook. So, um, and I've got the, the the actual hard copy as well, The E Myth by Michael Gerber. Oh yeah, <laughs> classic. Yeah, and and entrepreneurship right now. That tends to be where I go. Tend to be where I go for my for my learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about, is there an app, like a go-to app you have on your phone that you just couldn't live without? I imagine for you, one of them's got to be travel-related. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the travel translation. Uh, <laughs> um, I pretty much have most of the apps for dining downloaded from the global cities. <laughs> right. <laughs> when I land somewhere, I can quickly get into the food scene. That's pretty important to me. Right. Uh, and then just some of the fundamentals, you know, like when, when you land in London, like how do you, you know, get a car booked or the local version of the taxis. And mm-hmm. so a lot of travel, travel related apps to make my life easier. Um, that's okay. pretty, pretty essential. Listen, this year we got to travel together because we got to eat together, Andrew. <laughs> I mean, I you, you got to go eat with someone who had like knows what's trending and, and knows what's going on in food and Bev. So... I'm in. Yeah, we got we yeah, gotta, we gotta figure out a way to, to get together on in another great food city. What what is your favorite food city? Obviously you love Shanghai, you love the food there. But yeah. where else do you love to go eat? I I'm kinda of thinking about this actually. I, I mean there's there's just great cuisine all over. I mean, if I think of some of my more memorable cuisine lately, um Myanmar is is pretty incredible. Just the diversity of flavors, Asian flavors, sort of like India meets sort of Southeast Asia. Israel was pretty incredible. Last summer I was there. It was just like a food explosion every every corner. Um, Melbourne, where I'm from, uh, I think has just got some of the best food in the world. Toronto was pretty impressive as well. I was there last week. Um, though they say Toronto is like a, another version of Melbourne. I'm not completely convinced. But <laughs> there are some pretty, pretty good corners to turn around and explore new food. Um, but all over, New York City is fantastic as well. Yeah. Um, but I'm... One thing I do is like when I do travel for work, I try to I try to sort of book in those meetings with a with a weekend so I can get out and hit the streets and explore. Um, I don't know how people can do all this global travel and just get on and off planes and not get into the local neighborhoods. It's just sacrilege. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I'm totally with you. That's this yeah. is absolutely absolutely the best thing. But you know, you are all over Southeast Asia. That you is really your backyard and your playground. I mean, mm-hmm. come on, the food. I mean, it's just. That's just stupid, yeah. ridiculous. So, okay, I'm going to end here with just letting people know something really crazy about Andrew. 
And uh, Andrew, I know you don't know this about me, but I actually play the auto harp. It's so incredibly uncool. And it's just my pride and joy. I love my little auto harp. I even played at the very beginning of this podcast for our little musical interlude. Um, It's never going to come back in style, and that's okay. But I just want to let our audience know a little something about Andrew is that he plays the bagpipes. So there. So, I mean, I I just, come on. Which are very good for drowning out auto harps, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I I love it. I think I tried to play with an auto harp one day. Did um, you? Yes. Yeah, I did. I did. See, so I, I, I knew you were my people, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, they are fun, auto harps. Oh. They're good. They're predictable. They're, they're easy as for the bagpipes are not. And they're very loud. Oh, um, well, yeah, I've been playing that for 30 years. I love it. I love it. I find it. I'm now. I'm going to ask other people on my podcast. I'm sorry. You know, I, I just I don't know if I can have you on. You have to play something more interesting than, than the auto harp or the bagpipes because we we already got it beat. So, <laughs> well, the hurdy gurdy is probably one that I could take up that could impress. Okay, us. can we find someone please who could do that? So, <laughs> thanks so much, Andrew, for coming on and talking to us about you know what's just interesting, what's emerging, uh, what are what are you know persistent issues going on in the insights industry and in China. We we definitely want to hear from you again. I'm going to let my um, my listeners send in some questions and uh, let's load some up because I think it'd be really fun to have you on as a panel guest um, with other international um, insights uh, innovators. Really, I think that would be super cool. So thanks for coming on Ponderings from the Perch. It certainly has been fun. Yeah, and it, my pleasure as well. Thank you very much. I know it's been short. I could you know sit here and talk for hours about things China and Asia. So um, I'm looking forward if folks have questions of, of any uh, shape or form, feel free to get in touch and uh, hopefully I can make it onto one of these international panels. Thanks right. for I love it. Okay, so this is Andrew Kuehler from the founder and CEO of the Silk Initiative. I want you to find him on LinkedIn. It's Andrew and the last name is, is K-U-I-L-E-R. So look him up on LinkedIn. We'll attach it in the show notes and we'll actually put that quiz in there and you got to tell us how you did on the actual quiz and see what you know about the emerging Chinese market and where Food and Bev is going and insights um, there. It will be, it, it is so fun. Uh, but we'll be sure to add that in the show notes. And instead of uh, instead of giving us like a lengthy review about what you liked or didn't like about the show, how about you just give us what your score was on the quiz and see if you did any better than I did and give us a, a, a rating and a review on iTunes. That's what helps other people discover the podcast. So, But whatever you do, if you have something that's an emerging persistent question about the Chinese market, make sure you give Andrew and his awesome team at the Silk Initiative a call. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Priscilla. Have a great day. And all of you out there from all of Little Birds here at Little Bird Marketing, happy marketing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.